0: You're listening to the weekly teaching podcast of Beaverton Christian Church in Beaverton, Oregon. We hope that what you hear today inspires you to laugh, question, think, and grow. If you'd like to connect with us even further, hit us up online at beaverton.cc or send us a direct message on Instagram or Facebook. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoyed this week's episode. Well, good morning, good morning. How are we doing, BCC? BCC? Good, 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 good. You know, I, you guys have no idea. Peter, what he's doing downstairs with the kids is amazing. Um, if you don't know me, my name is Grant. I, I have six kids that uh, last service, they were all down there. We're at like a 10 to 2 range right now. And so we love this time of year. And I just love the party that they're having down there, the fun. They do this fun thing with tokens Is uh, the kids answer questions. And my kids, they figured it out. They've, they've got the racket going. They're like, wait a minute, there's six of us. If we pool our resources together, we can buy the biggest prize on the first Sunday of the month. Um, and so my apologies to all of you that have like two kids in your families and your kids save it up and they're trying, but, but my kids figured it out. Um, and so they, they even, I was proud of them. They actually pulled it all together, the older ones, and bought a p- present for their two-year-old brother for Christmas this year. Right? I know, I know. My, my wife's doing a great job raising them. Um, and so, so it's just, it's fun. They love the, the BCC kids down there. Well, uh, we are launching a brand new series uh, called Adore. And, and, you know, adoration, it's one of those words that we don't use a whole lot to adore something, right? To to, to care for, to love, to cherish. And um, unless you're Harry Styles singing to a fish in his music video, which is a little bit weird if you've seen it, uh, it's not really a word we use in our culture today. And yet we all adore things. There are things that, that we cherish, we love, we value, we respect deeply. For some of us, the thing that we really love and adore is popularity and, and, and all that that brings with it and being like kind of seen as the person to go to. Maybe it's relationships that we adore. Maybe, maybe it's finances. Like you just, just money is just constantly something you're thinking about. It's consuming your thoughts. Maybe it's, it's the people around you. Maybe it's a skill set. We all have things that we value more than other things. The thing about adoration, though, is the thing we adore is the thing that we become because we're naturally drawn to it. Whatever it is that we value, that we cherish, that we love, that we respect on a deep level, that is the thing that we are instinctively like a magnet just drawn towards. Which means if it's a good thing, then we become into the image of that good thing and like that good thing. But it means if it's something that's not healthy for us, then we begin to get into a spot. And maybe you've been drawn to something in the past in your life. And then you found yourself in a place looking at yourself and going, I don't know how I got here and I'm not glad that I am here. Because that which we adore, we are drawn to. It's why a theologian put it this way when they talked about the incarnation The glory of the incarnation is that it presents to our adoring gaze, not a humanized God or a deified man, but a true God man. One who is, is all that God is. And at the same time, all that man is one whose almighty arm we can rest and to whose human sympathy we can appeal. You see, what they're saying is the incarnation, which is what we talk about when Jesus, as God came and put on flesh, became a human being. It's not just a deified man, right? And it's it's not just a humanized God. It is fully God and fully man. And we can rest on the almighty arm and appeal to to the sympathy that we can appeal to there, which is why Jesus is worthy of our adoration. Jesus is worthy of our worship and praise. And the story of Jesus is a shift in perspective where God was not someone that we were trying to get to, but that God came down to us. And now if you're a follower of Jesus, then you have the invitation to participate in the things of God in your life. But before we can participate with something, we actually have to make sure that we have the right perspective on that something. Because our perspective changes the way that we participate sometimes. And so we need to understand who God is and and view him rightly and understand the invitation that is there. And the thing about participating in something is because you have to have a perspective shift, sometimes the perspective shift is hard. It's hard because I have blind spots. I have areas where I'm not even aware of it and I don't even know it. And so I need more information to, to come my way to help me see things a little bit different. I know this to be true because one of my favorite TV shows to watch is one on the History Channel called Pawn Stars. Now, I don't actually watch it on the History Channel because we don't pay for cable like so many people today. And so I watch it on YouTube instead. Uh, the History Channel has, has all these great like montages that they put together on YouTube. And they, they title them brilliantly. They title them things like seven angry sellers lose their cool. Or there, there's another one. It's like 12 most expensive items ever purchased on the show. And I know that it's clickbait. Like, I know that they're titling that so that I will click on it. And I do every single time. And then I find myself just in this vortex of like, how much time has passed? Where did it go? But I love it. I just love it. And you know, the premise of the show is somebody comes into this pawn shop there in Vegas and they want to sell something. And they have in their mind what that something is worth or how much money they want to get out of it. And so Rick and then the guys that run the shop there, they understand that the best part about negotiation is you never be the first one to say the price, make the other person say the price. So they'll always make the person that wants to do the selling say the price first so that they can kind of counter And every now and then it doesn't go like they think it should go. For instance, I was watching one the other day. They were going to sell a silver coin, right? This is a 1922 high relief silver coin. And just so you know, this was a screenshot of me watching it. Seven insanely high appraisals, right? Huge profits for rare items. And I'm like, what rare items can I go find? I want to know this. The story about this coin is, is the guy that was selling it won it in a poker match with a friend. And so something, I don't know what the pot was worth, but the guy threw in a silver coin. He won it off him. So he comes to the pawn shop and he's ready to sell his silver coin. And he says, yeah, I'd, you know, if I could get $20,000 out of this today, I would love to get that. And Rick looks at the guy and goes, I'll give you 20,000 right now. He goes, but I think it might be worth more than that. He goes, I don't really know this is what I think it is. Let me find out. And he brings in his, his uh, colleague, right, that's, a, that's an appraiser of coins. They bring this guy in and he looks at it and he verifies that this really is a 1922 high relief silver coin. And he says, Hey, I would appraise this coin at somewhere between 50 and hundred thousand dollars. At which point the guy looks at Rick and goes, Oh, and Rick goes, $20,000. <laughs> right? Because they had new information. And so what sounded like $20,0? you want to give me $20,000 today, I will say thank you very much, right? Like like what seems like a lot of money at one moment, you get new information and all of a sudden my perspective is different and the way I participate in that negotiation changes. Which is why a guy that walked in looking for $20,000 walked out with $80,000. He participated a little bit differently. I also wonder what it was like when he went to his friend who was like, dude, I just sold your coin, (laughs) And the guy's like, the pot was not that big. You owe me some money, right? Or or sometimes it's the opposite. The opposite happens. Like the lady that came in because she had a contract signed by Elvis Presley. And it was one of the the contracts that was signed right before he became famous. And it had the venue, the date that they were gonna pay him $225 to do the one show. And it had Elvis's signature on it. And so she walks in that day and she's like, hey, I would like to get eight to $10,000 for this. And again, they said, hey, this looks legit. It all seems there. Let us bring in an expert. So they brought the expert in and he looked at it and he said, yes, this is a real contract from Elvis. It is there. I can see the venue. He played at that venue on that date. That's about what they would have been paying based on this. I can see it. And he said, but I just got to check one more thing. And he takes his magnifying glass and he gets down on the signature and he begins to look at it. And then he comes up and he says, hey, this is a contract that Elvis signed, but it's a photocopy of the contract which is why up there it says, deal's gone wrong. Five angry and disappointed sellers. Cause the lady was like, well, yeah, but it's still like, and he goes, this appraises for zero, nada, nilch, nothing. And so now she's looking at Rick going, so, and he's like, I'm not buying a piece of paper from you. The perspective on what I thought I had versus what I have changed the relationship that happened there. Today, and we're going to be looking in Matthew chapter 2 at one group of people and one person. And as we look at it, this group and this person, we're going to see that they have very different perspectives on what is happening in the world. And different ways of participating with the story that is happening. And we're going to be in Matthew chapter 2 because, well, this is a Christmas series. And so as we go through this entire series, we're going to look at different characters and different people in the Bible from Wait For It the Christmas story. I know, shocking, shocking. And so, so as we look at that, we're going to just see the way that each of these people participated and came to worship and adore God. And so if you have like your Bible app on your phone or whatever, feel free to go to Matthew chapter two. I'm going to be reading the words from the screen here in just a moment. But, but to kind of catch you up to where we're jumping into the story today, you've got Mary and Joseph, who are the mother and father of Jesus. And now in that, right, like an angel of the Lord has come to Mary and said, hey, I know that you are not yet wed to Joseph and there has been no sexual relations between you, but you are pregnant in a miraculous way by the, in the son of God is in you. And so then he comes to the angel comes to Joseph and he says, hey, do not divorce Mary in this. So the two of them decide to stay in a relationship because of their perspective on what is happening here. They they then have to go to Bethlehem, which is where Joseph is from as uh, a tax and a census was being done there. They get there and it's super crowded as you know and and, and there's no room in the end as it were. And then they end up in sort of like a cave in a stable and Mary goes in to labor and Jesus is born. And then sometime later, somewhere between zero to two years old, is where we're gonna pick up the story in Matthew chapter two, verse one. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, in the time of King Herod, wise men from the East came to Jerusalem saying, where is the one who is born King of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was alarmed and all of Jerusalem with him. So after assembling all of the chief priests and the experts in the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem of Judea, they said, for it is written this way by the prophet. And then they quote to him, Micah chapter five, verse two, and you Bethlehem and the land of Judah are in no way least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Then Herod privately summoned the wise men and determined from them when the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Hey, go look carefully for the child. And when you find him, inform me so that I can go and worship him as well. After listening to the king, they left. And once again, the star they saw when it rose led them until it stopped above the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they shouted joyfully. As they came into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. They bowed down and worshiped him. They opened their treasure boxes and gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. After being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they went back by another route to their own country. So this is the story of scripture that we're looking at today. Now, depending on your church background, or let's be honest, you can have zero church background, depending on the, the, the massive amounts of marketing that have happened around this, and there's some misconceptions about this text to begin with. First of all, like, like if you have a nativity like we do set up at our house, the nativity set always comes with three wise men, three magi. Nowhere in the text does it say that there were three of them. We have no idea how many there, there were. We know it's plural because magi is the plural form of the word. So we know there's a lot of them, but we don't know if it's three or multiples. The reason we have three in our nativity sets is for two reasons. One, there's three gifts that are brought. And so we go, okay, at least three people carrying three gifts. And secondly, if you sold a nativity set with like 10 magi, that's just weird. No one would buy that. Uh, and so it's, it's just like, like, how do we sell this in a way that tells the story that is there? Uh, secondly, we, we don't really know when this is happening. It's why in verse one, it says after. It's why it begins with after this had happened, after Jesus was born. We know that after this story, we we see some things we'll talk about in a minute that happened with Herod. And so we put it somewhere at like early on, months after Jesus is born to, to maybe even two years. You'll even remember in the story that they show up to find Jesus and they find Jesus in the house. So they're no longer at the stable, they are at the house. And so sometime in the future, Jesus is born in Bethlehem and the, the King Herod and these wise men come from the East. Now, to us, we read the East and we just kind of fly through that. We're like, cool, that you're giving me a geographical location. Little Bible study tip for you. When geography is mentioned, it's usually significant. And so they're coming from the East. Well, what does that mean? Well, throughout the Old Testament, the East is very rarely looked upon in a positive light. And the reason for that is that there was a moment where the Babylonian empire, the Babylons came and they fought a war against Israel and they win. And they take a bunch of people from Israel back to the Babylon people. If you're familiar with guys like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that walked into the fiery furnace and God had them survive and and live there. Or or maybe uh, you're more familiar with the story of Daniel and the lion's den. And, And Daniel, who there's an entire book in the Old Testament named after him, He became friends with the king of Babylon and began to even have influence in that region about the philosophy and the religion that was taught. And yet because of the war, the East was looked upon as an enemy of Israel. And so for all of Israel's history, something from the East is typically not a good thing. But even at the time that Matthew is writing this, it was seen that way. Here's a map of the world at the time. And so you can see in the red there is the Roman Empire. The green is the Parthian or the Persian empire. And there in the the brown little spot in the middle is the Armenian kingdom. Now, what you need to understand is as Rome would come and overtake people. They would set up somebody to be king of that region, but they were kind of a, a puppet king. This is Herod, king of Judah within the Roman empire. He's king of down there, you see Judea down at the bottom. And there's those two really little tiny words. That's Jerusalem and Bethlehem. So just just to kind of give you the region that we're in here. That area of Armenia, the battle that had been waging between Rome and the Persians was over who got to say who was king in that area. They had been fighting since 54 BC over who got to say the king of Armenia is. At the point in our story, we're somewhere around four to six BC, which means for Herod's entire life, there had been a war being waged in that area over who would be king. Which then makes sense when some people from the east, the wise men from the east, show up and are going, hey, there is one who is going to be born king of the Jews. That's a big deal. They're going, whoa, wait a minute, what's happening here? Not only that, but they know that if there's a war happening up in the the northeast of them, and now here they are in the more southwest part of this region, nobody wants a war on two fronts. And if there's somebody that's claiming to be king, that Rome has not crowned, Rome is going to come and fight them. And so these men come from the East. Not only did they come from this enemy in the wrong place, but they were also studied Zoroastrianism, which was a religion started in the East under a guy whose name was Zoroaster right? The first thing you had to do when you came into his like little sect of religion was learn to carve a Z with your blade. But but the, so you've got Zoroaster and Zoroastrianism and these guys from the East come and they're a different religion that, that study the stars and, and they study everything that's going on and they see this happening. And so they've come and they're coming from this area with a different religion and a different king and a different system to say we're here to worship the king of the Jews. So everybody gets alarmed at this. That explains why not only Herod is alarmed, but all of Jerusalem is alarmed with him. Because they're going, we do not want something bad to happen and Rome to come into this area. But Herod is a smart guy. Herod is smart. And so he he sends the Magi out and he brings in all of the chief priests. And these are the individuals that would have known the Old Testament Mosaic law. And he asks them a very specific question, right? Where the Christ will be born. And here's what you need to understand. Christ is not Jesus's last name. It's a title. It means the Messiah. It means the anointed one the one who will come to rule over Israel and make all things right. It comes from Psalm chapter two. It's the first place where we see it, that this anointed one is going to come that gets translated as Messiah and as Christ. So Herod understands the Old Testament text because he's asking, where is this anointed one going to come from? Hey, chief priests, experts in the Mosaic law, I'm from Edom, I know the region. I know the stories of the anointed one of Israel. Where is this person going to be born? And then they quote Micah 5, 2, an Old Testament prophecy about where Jesus is going to be born. So Herod grabs the Magi again, and he brings them back in the room. And then I I tend to like, look, see, I tend to see comedy in the scripture where maybe it's not. But in verse eight, there just seems to be this comical moment for me where he says, he sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and look carefully for the child. I find that humorous because that's what they were already doing, right? It's like Herod here in this position of power. And he's like, hey, I've got this idea you came to Jerusalem cause that's the capital city of Judah and you're looking for the king here and I'm the current king here, but it's not me, but it's somebody that was born in Bethlehem and my wise men have told me that. So I have this great idea. Why don't you go to Bethlehem and find him? And you can almost imagine the Magi in this moment going, yeah, that's kind of why we came from the East. Like if you've ever had a group project that you were working on, maybe it was in school or at work and you've done it and early on you threw out an idea about that project and it kind of got like pushed to the side and then you keep going through it and all of a sudden at the end of the week and the project's due, somebody's like, I've got an idea and they throw it out and you're like, I literally said that. Like, like that exact same thing, right? Because sometimes people just want to claim things as their own. So the, I tend to see Herod in this moment kind of going like, like I've got an idea. You guys go and do it and worship him. And when you come back, tell me as well. Now, if you know anything of the story, you're probably looking at the Magi in this moment going, don't trust this guy. He's power hungry. In fact, history would tell us that at one point in his life, he got word that his um, wife and two of his sons were maybe secretly planning a coup to overthrow him and take the kingship from him. So he immediately had them killed. He's power hungry. And yet he tells them, hey, you go on and find them. The distance between Jerusalem and Bethlehem is five miles. He could go himself, but he sends them instead. And then in verse 11, it says that they came to the house. And this is where they find the child and the mother. And they bow down and worship Jesus. Giving him frankincense and gold and myrrh. Gold, which would have been a gift fitting for a king of a valued treasure. Uh, frankincense. that was a, a resin pulled from a tree that would have given off a, an aroma that would have reminded people of the sacrificial system that was in place there in Israel. And the myrrh, which was pulled from the, the branches of some bushes that was oils that were used to make a body bed, bed, ready for burial. I like to think of gold being gold and frankincense being like an incense and myrrh being essential oils They were there. These were the things that they bring to go. These are things that we value and we want to bring and worship this king that is a child. And then verse 12, after being warned of this in a dream, not to return to Herod, they went back by another route to their own country. And that's where we were going to stop in today's story. Which then begs the question of us, like, okay, what do we take from this? What in all that is happening here does does God maybe have for us this morning? And I think quite simply, we see Herod and we see the wise men and we see that they have very different perspectives on what is happening. And the perspectives they have affect the way they participate in the things God is doing. You see, one's perspective on God changes the way one participates with God. Your perspective on what God is doing right now and in your life and in the world around you shifts and changes the way you participate with God in that. So let's look at the two perspectives then. Let's take Herod's first. Herod's perspective and his participation in the story. Oh, the first thing that we would see is that Herod is called the king of the Jews. That means he's the right person. He's the king of the Jews. Yes, Rome is in control, but this guy is the king of the Jews in that area, which means he has the authority and the power to change things and to do things. He's the person that everyone in the region is looking to for how are we going to interact with Rome and with what is happening right now. He's the right person in this moment. Not only that, but he's from the right place. He's from the right place because he's born in Edom. Now, now in scripture, Edom is a place that was uh, started right early on. Israel comes, Esau's descendants live in Edom. And Esau's descendants were supposed to be one nation with Israel under God. And yet throughout Israel's history, they had been at war with one another, vying for power and control. And so he was born in a place where now as the guy from Edom, the enemy of Israel, but being the king of the Jews, he's in a position to unite together something that God had always desired would be together. He's from the right, he's in the right person and he's from the right place. And he even knows the chief priests in the right system. There's the moment where he goes, wait, this is really the anointed one. He uses this very specific biblical word. He brings in the chief priest and he goes, hey, what does this say about the Messiah that is going to come? He knows that he he was at least being from Edom raised under it and around it. And he knows and trusts the scriptures enough to cognitively follow them. The question is, will he physically follow after it as well? You see, when we look at Herod on the face of things, with these three things in place, it's why the fourth thing surprises us. He worshiped himself, the wrong king. See, although he had all these things going for him, his perspective was off. How do I keep doing things my way and keep power for me and my descendants? Rather than worshiping the anointed one of God. See, the participation shifts for him. In essence, the scripture seems to say that he basically fakes it. That he says the right thing out loud, go to Bethlehem, find this child. And once you do, let me know so I can come and worship the child. But somewhere between the conviction of worship and him hearing the word that the Magi have tricked him and not come back, he changes his mind. The text would go on to say that he changes his mind so much so that to the point that after this, he goes to the region of Bethlehem and he has every boy to and under murdered. Because his perspective was off. And so the way he participated was off. Instead of participating with Jesus in his arrival, he participates in opposition to it. And know, I hear all of that about Herod and and I see this and and there's this part of me that goes, man, how could he do that? Like everything was there. Like, it's like God had just set him up perfectly for this moment. Like how in the world could he not participate in what God was doing until I slow down enough to go, wait a minute, I do that. Like I'm a lot more like Herod than I might want to admit. I've had those times where I'm very convicted about something. Whether it's through reading scripture or just the Holy Spirit in my life or or my spouse or the home community that I'm a part of. These these people that would speak into my life and I'm convicted about something. And I'm like, you know what? Because this perspective shift, I'm going to participate differently moving forward. But that five miles from Sunday's conviction to Monday's office changes things. So I'm a lot more like Herod than I want to admit. I do this with my faith, but I do it with like silly things. You ever been to the dentist? Yeah, that moment, that moment where you look up and you're like, oh, I have a dentist appointment next week. I should probably start flossing. (laughs) Right, because my perspective on what's happening in my life has shifted. And so I'm like, I'm going to start flossing. I'm going to floss two times a day. And then you go into the dentist and they're like, so how's flossing going? And you're like, good, I've been flossing every day, which is technically true. And you think you're going to get away with it till the moment the dental hygienist starts poking on your gums and you're bleeding everywhere. And you're like, I didn't fool anybody. I didn't fool anybody. And so then you do the thing, you get the lecture from the dentist about how you need to take care of your gums and dental health and all that. And you're like, yes. And they give you the little treat bag minus the stickers and bouncy ball that you got when you were a kid. And you're all excited about it. And you go home and you're like, I'm going to be different now. I'm going to become a flosser. (laughs) And then you look up and my dentist appointment is two weeks away and I should probably start flossing. But hey, it's a week earlier this time. Right? We, guys, if, we, if I do it with the dentist, I know I do it in my faith. I just know that, that in the big things and the small things, I can be much more like Herod than I want to admit. And so there's a warning here for us. But I told you there was two perspectives. We also have the Magi. Their perspective and Their participation. Remember, they're Eastern Persians, not Jewish, right? And so that that means if we look at their chart, they're wise men, which means they're the wrong people. They come from a different religion even. And yet they're the ones that come and worship God. They're from the east. That's the wrong place. This isn't the chosen nation of Israel coming to worship a king. This is some foreigners from a foreign land. What the Gentiles and Jew debate was all about at the time. And they used the wrong system. They're studying the stars and astrology, trying to figure out what's going on in the world rather than communing with the God almighty that has created them. And yet they're the ones that show up to worship Jesus, the right king. You see, this is the audacious thing that's in the text is that as Matthew is writing this and his original readers would have gone, no, 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 that's not how this is supposed to work. Herod should have been the one to go and to worship, not these foreign men from a foreign land with the wrong system, worshiping the correct king, showing up with their time, the travel their treasure, the things that they gave, and their talent, the ability to see the stars and what is happening. They're the ones that show up to worship the King. Which means, long before Jesus grew up to be a man, long before he went and died on the cross to pay the penalty that you and I owe long before Jesus rose from the dead and the curtain of the temple was torn in two, symbolically saying that we now have all access to the father through the blood and the resurrection of Jesus long before the apostle Paul comes on the scene and is on his way to kill Christians and God confronts him and radically shifts his perspective so he participates differently and becomes what is known as the pastor to the Gentiles before any of that at the birth of Jesus, God is declaring through the story to the world that I don't care if you feel like you come from the right place or the wrong place, you can come and adore the king. We all have the ability to worship God and to follow the way of the Magi who see a star perspective shift. And put it into participation, action moving forward and go. They come in it to Herod and they say, we are looking for the king of the Jews. And they get now the information of it's going to be in Bethlehem, the faith from the priests. So then they go to Bethlehem and they worship participation. And then God comes to them in a dream And he says, Don't go back, and they have a new perspective on what to do next, and they participate differently by defying a king in the entire Roman world. One's perspective on God changes the way one participates with God. And every single day, we have a choice in that perception. Day by day, moment by moment, choice by choice. We have the gift of God, this ability to come to him and say, God, I'm going to choose to let you define my perspective and therefore lead me in how I participate in my life and my faith with you. Which begs the question then, how are you participating with God in adoration? And where do you need your perspective to shift so that you can? You see, I think there is a Herod and there is a Magi in all of us. And so there's moments in my life that I go, man, I can identify with Herod a little bit more. But then there's things that I go, no, I, I am the Magi too. Like, so, so where am I already participating in God, with God in that? I want to celebrate that. I want to be aware of that and then continue to do it. But then I also want to go, gosh, how do I then shift my perspective on some things? Are there things holding me back from participating with God in the full life that he has for me? And Maybe it's around forgiveness. There is just somebody in my life that I'm like, God, I know you've called me to forgive them, but do you know what they did? And I'm just unwilling to go there. And God's going, that's holding you back from being able to participate fully because it doesn't affect them. It's only affecting you. Would you forgive them? as I've forgiven you. Maybe it's in Thanksgiving, the holiday that we just came off of that we wouldn't just say, yeah, that was a fun thing that was there. But no, you know what? I'm going to shift my perspective to now live my life in a way that instead of looking at everything that I don't have, I'm going to begin to count my blessings of what I do have and just thank God for that on a consistent way and in an intentional way and see how it begins to change my attitude in life. Maybe it's around humility that I'm going to just, God, there is pride in me and I see myself in certain ways above and better than other people. And would you break that for me? And so God, I'm just gonna just begin to live my life in a way that serves other people and just lives in humility before them. And if it hurts me, that's okay. I'm just gonna live this out and begin to take those steps of faith. Maybe it's around generosity and go, God, I'm just going to become a person that when I see the need, I'm just going to try to meet it. And I just want to be generous because I want to participate more in what you're doing. Maybe it's around the rhythm of rest and work and that you just are in the daily grind of your job because you feel like you have to do that to find worth and value and satisfaction. And God is going, hey, would you just begin to take a season, a day, a week of rest as a day to just practice going, you know what? I don't have to produce anything today to have a self-worth, God. I just trust you that you are enough and so I can rest in that there's all sorts of ways that we can go God would you redefine my perspective so that I can participate differently but it's our choice we have the choice laid before us to worship and adore him and that choice is open to everyone Let's pray together. Father God, I just, I I am so thankful for the Magi and for your using them. Father, help me to see where I'm celebrating and participating in adoration with you and for you and to celebrate that. And then let me not miss the moments of conviction where I need to shift what I'm doing. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray these things. Amen.